I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors. Today, I'm interviewing leading presidential historian Harold Holzer, author of the new book, The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News, which came out August 25, 2020. And we did the virtual interview in front of a Dallas audience on October 28th. Enjoy. my great uh, privilege to uh, have with us this morning my friend Harold Holzer uh, to talk about his wonderful new book, The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media from the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Harold uh, was kind enough to allow me to interview him for my book as my Abraham Lincoln historian, and so we met about five years ago, uh, but he is uh, I think, in everyone's opinion, the leading scholar on Abraham Lincoln uh, in the country now. He's won the Lincoln Prize. He's the head of the Lincoln Forum. He was the head of the Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. And uh, so uh, he has now uh, expanded uh, beyond Lincoln. And uh, Harold, uh, welcome to the Turtle Creek uh, Breakfast Club. And I guess I want my first question to be with someone who spent much of your adult life specializing on Lincoln, what motivated you to expand and want uh, to write a book that uh, involved a whole lot of presidents besides Lincoln? I think it started, it was the inspiration came from two angles. First, um, as I said, I work in uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, townhouse in New York City. And one of the highlight um, sites, the interior sites within the building, is a uh, parlor on the second floor. The day after the election in 1932, which, by the way, Herbert Hoover did not concede on election night. So the, the morning after, I mean, he only won nine states, but he didn't concede. Um, the next morning, FDR was wheeled into that parlor, was, was put in an was put in an easy chair um, right in front of the fireplace and delivered a radio address of about one minute. Anybody can see it because it was also filmed for Fox Movie Till News right after that. And in essence, it was his first fireside chat. So <clears throat> that inspired my interest, how a president or a president-elect or a newly elected president communicates to the people. So that opened up uh, an avenue of inquiry that I thought about. And also, um, I, after uh, President Trump was elected, I was interested in the, in the phrase fake news that was bandied about and is still bandied about. And I was wondering whether he was, in fact, the first president to talk that derisively about the media. I wanted to look back, and, uh, and I decided to look all the way back. So I got encouraged. My, my one-time publisher did not think it was a great idea, but I found a new publisher. I actually signed to do another book on Lincoln and immigration. And then I said, I've got to do this book first because we'll get it out in time for the election. And also, I've, you know, I was a, a child newspaper man when I was 20. My first job out of college was working for a very political newspaper, a weekly newspaper in New York. And then I was a political press secretary on 
the campaign trail in New York. And uh, I worked for Governor Cuomo for a while, the first Governor Cuomo. So I figured I, if I did this, I could apply a historian's lens and also look at it as, you know, a briefly a journalist and for a long time a press secretary. So then I thought I had something I could offer. You, you say in, in the opening that, quote, and I've heard this before, but it's important for your book, that, quote, journalists write the first draft of presidential history. So what are some of the instances where those first drafts have turned out to be substantially wrong? Well, as I say in the book, the first president who complained about for fake news was the first president. And um, we know we think of George Washington as an exalted, immune nonpartisan hero, and he thought of himself exactly the same way. <clears throat> so when, um, at the beginning of his second term, when his own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, invited an anti-federalist editor to move to the national capital of Philadelphia, set up shop, and start <laughs> writing critical articles about George Washington. This is from within his own cabinet. And Jefferson not only got him to move to Philadelphia, he gave him a job in the State Department uh, as a translator to make it easier for him to afford the transition. Um, so this kind of, you know, some people complain about Sean Hannity being too close to Donald Trump. How about Philip Freneau and Thomas Jefferson? There's an American tradition here of political politicization of the media that I think is useful to understand because people get like, high blood pressure thinking about 2020, and it's really part of our culture. Anyway, um, Washington was, was for four years attacked by the Republican Democratic press, brutally, as someone who stole money from the Treasury, who had uh, really had a bad record in the Revolutionary War and the French and Indian War, um, who flourished about regally in a carriage, who demanded that people celebrate his birthday, who was wrong on policy, that was the least of it. And, and you know, we all um, probably know about Washington's farewell address, and we know that he decided against a third term because we are told he did not want to establish a precedent for a monarchy. If you read the first draft of the farewell address, it's pretty clear, this is a paragraph that he, was, that he deleted, that he couldn't stand the press anymore, couldn't stand the criticism. He thought it was hurting the country, that the press were enemies of the union. Sound familiar? It should. So when Washington left, finally, um, in 1797, he was a very partisan figure. He was reviled by the anti-federalists. And obviously, history has taken good care of his reputation. Lincoln also was a highly partisan figure. I would say that the first draft of history on Wilson by the press, a lot of the press did not like Wilson personally, but they, except for the black press, which hated him, the most of the progressive press was very friendly to Wilson. And as we know now, um, Wilson's reputation is suffering now as exam as there's much more scrutiny of his of his attitudes on race than there was for the last fifty years. LBJ is a whole other one. We should talk a lot about LBJ, but I'll leave that out for. Okay. Well, Harry Truman once said, and David McCullough likes to repeat this, quote, it takes 50 years for the dust to settle before a historical assessment or a valid historical assessment can be made 
of a president's effectiveness or lack thereof. Do you agree with that as to the 50 years? Uh, yeah, it's somewhere, you know, between 25 and 50. I think, but, but you know, the passage of time, reputations also come and go. I mean, Truman left with record on low, um, you know, um, negative ratings. Of course, he ran for election in 1948 with record negatives. He's still, according to Gallup, the only president ever to be elected. And, he, you know, you can say reelected for Truman because he served four years of FDR's term. The only pre pre sitting president to be reelected with a um, uh, approval rating lower than 50%. And probably that was because it was a four-way race. But we'll see if Donald Trump beats that historical mark. He is he is like George H.W. Uh, Bush um, and Jimmy Carter um, going into a re-election campaign uh, with under 50. I think actually Barack Obama was like 49 in July before his re-election campaign. So he's he's right on the edge. But yeah, it takes a long time. But Truman is starting to slide now again, in, reputationally. So maybe the fifty-year mark is a, is a is a healthy point for reevaluation. But the reevaluation never ends. So the bomb is being requestioned. Uh, he's being celebrated for integrating the military, which was not in his column before. Nobody <laughs> talked about that. Nobody talked about his initiatives on healthcare, which were not successful. So. You know, Eisenhower was high. Now he's falling a bit. It's very complicated. No magic number, Talmadge. Okay. Well, you've uh, talked about uh, George Washington and his battle with the press. Chapter two of your book is on John Adams, who got so fed up with the press during his presidency that he and his Federalist Party comrades in Congress passed the Sedition Act, which made any criticism of President Adams and Federalist policy a crime punishable by incarceration. So what impact did the sedition ha have on uh, Adam's life and his legacy? Well, it, it, it certainly had an impact on at least 17 editors, and their widows in some cases. Um, Adams directed the attorney general um, to prosecute his particular editors. Some of them did wind up in jail. Some of them paid large fines as well. Um, and remember, this is the only time in American history that um, that the First Amendment was specifically, it, the specifics of the First Amendment were ignored, which says Congress shall make no law bridging freedom of, this, of speech or the press. Congress did, in fact, pass the law. And um, think about the judiciary. Here's another subject that's much on our minds, the composition of the judiciary. So it's a federal crime to criticize or ridicule the president. And that meant only anti-federalist editors, of course. And who are the judges? It's not just that they're lopsidedly federalist. They're all federalists because they've all been appointed by either George Washington or John Adams, the first two presidents. That is not a good place for a defendant to be. Um, so I think not only was his legacy tainted, arguably the, the smartest best educated man, uh, maybe except for his son, to be president of the United States. Um, uh, and I think it lost him the, uh, the 1800 election to Thomas Jefferson as well. So immediate impact 
and historical impact as well. He was the first one-term president, the first president defeated. And he goes down in history, except for David McCullough. Talmadge, I know you like him, and I do too. But the first president to you know, have a reputation as a sour a person who did not have his finger on the pulse of political justice. And, and for all of our, for those of you who don't like Donald Trump's attacks on the press, just think, John Adams actually prosecuted journalists. Abraham Lincoln put almost, closed down nearly over 200 newspapers during the Civil War without a congressional mandate. He just did it as an executive, as a commander in chief, imprisoned editors in federal prison without trial for questioning the military draft or uh, re-enlistment. Woodrow Wilson clamped down on journalists and journalism during um, World War I and created a committee on public information that created an alternative reality for many people in the United States with a bombardment of, of um, you know, kind of government news. FDR did a modified version of that kind of oversight uh, during World War II. So those of you who don't like to hear Donald Trump um, bashing the media um, should know that uh, either he doesn't think he should go farther than bashing and tweeting, or he's not organized enough to do it, you know, to do more. Um, so it's been much worse in American history than it is now. Well, as I said in the introduction, Harold, you're our leading scholar on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Turtles, whenever you see an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times that deals with Abraham Lincoln, it's almost always written by Harold. So, Harold, was it difficult to write the Lincoln chapter, which is so highly negative and critical of Lincoln in his censorship of the press uh, during the Civil War? Um. It was hard to write the chapter because I wrote an 800-page book about Lincoln and the press. It was hard to find new things to say. So I did focus it on, um, on uh, censorship. Um, look, I give Lincoln, uh, I, I, I listed what his, uh, his, his uh, negative record is on censorship. Um, there's never been a civil war in this country. Um, the Constitution does say <clears throat> specifically that the writ of habeas corpus may be suspended in the case of rebellion. So, in fact, he acted within, in one sense within the Constitution. Do I think he was, I'm just pouring myself water here, sorry. Do I think he was excessive? Yes. Do I think he overdid it? Yes. But I say that, and everyone who questions his policy say that with the hindsight of knowing that we know who won the Civil War. We know what the outcome was. Lincoln didn't know what the outcome was. After Bull Run, um, at which time he thought the Union would win, you know, would quash the rebellion in a few months. Lincoln had no clue how it, it would end. So he was using every weapon at his disposal, military, political, censorship, repression. And um, so I, I, I do cut him some slack because, again, the, the future of the, a united country, in his view, was at stake. Now, moving on to Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and you said that the first fireside chat was where you have your office. Uh, that was actually uh, his very successful strategy for getting around the media by being able to talk directly to the American people uh, without a media filter in between. So did it bother the journalists of that era 
that he was essentially uh, usurping, uh, taking away their uh, filter and uh, making his own communication directly with the American people. Um, before I answer that, I promise I'll answer. Um, but I do, one of the, the, the two themes of my book, I guess, are that the fighting between the presidents and the press has been going on since the first president that what we're seeing now may be hotter and it may be in our faces every minute because of Twitter and 24-hour cable news, but it's been going on forever. The second theme in the book is that the presidents who turn up, turn out to be the best communicators are those who find a way around the, the press, as you just said, Talmadge, and, and, or the media, and establish their own links with the highest available and the newest available mass communications technology. And that list is short. It's FDR and radio. Um, it's John F. Kennedy and televised news conferences. It's, to some degree, uh, Barack Obama and the White House website, and it's Donald Trump with Twitter. Um, so, you know, 80 million followers or 90 million followers. Um, so going back to your question, Roosevelt was a communications genius to me, maybe the, the most uh, adept ever, because while he was doing his fireside chats, and remember, there were only 28 fireside chats in 12 years. And yet, <clears throat> um, Bob, I don't know if you've asked your mom, but I used to speak to my mom about Roosevelt and my father. And um, um, they... They thought he was on the radio all the time, like Jack Benny and Burns and Allen. He, I mean, they did. He did some speeches on radio, but the fireside chats were few and far between. Why? And yes, Republican newspapers—that is, Republican editorials—condemned um, the fireside chats. The Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, which opposed Roosevelt, the New York Daily News um, after World War II began, opposed Roosevelt bitterly. Um, but the line media did not, did not really object that much because Roosevelt held 998 news conferences in those same 12 years, 998 in the White House at Hyde Park in Warm Springs, where Joe Biden was speaking yesterday, um, in, uh, uh, on battleships in Iran, in, uh, in Yalta, everywhere. On, uh, I love the ones on ships. And people who think that Roosevelt was not with it at Yalta, I, I invite you to read the transcripts of the press conferences coming back from Yalta on a long, long sea voyage. It was pretty darn sharp and jousting with the press and dominating. The, the, the day before he died, he held a news conference um, at which he introduced a guest. This will sound familiar to those who watch President Trump's press conferences. I'm here with a guest, the president of the Philippines. Um, please ask him any question you want. And then he doesn't let the guy get a word in. He just talks the whole time. He answers every question. And he's very sharp. And then he says, by the way, boys, it's off the record. They liked him. They felt he was accessible for most of his presidency. Um, and proof of that is in the fact that they had this unofficial gentleman's agreement. And I say that in intentionally. There were only two women in the press corps that I know of at that time. Uh, in the White House press corps, an, a gentleman's agreement that Roosevelt never be photographed in his wheelchair or being lifted in and out of automobiles. So the nature of his 
uh, paralysis was really kind of a state secret for most of, if not all of his 12 years and one month as president. And that's a remarkable thing. I looked everywhere for, for you know, journalists or photographers commenting on whether they were forced into this. And they, later during the war, you weren't allowed to take any pictures um, without setting it up. You couldn't take spontaneous pictures because they were protecting Roosevelt's image as a wartime leader. But in the beginning, they said, well, he was a nice guy. He was trying to help. We don't want to make it harder for him. Can you imagine if the press said that today? Let's not cover President Trump's having COVID because he's such a nice fellow. We don't want to, we don't want to hurt him. It's just the gloves are off today. So yes, some resentment by editorial boards, but a lot of affection because in addition to the fireside chats, he was there for them and talked to them all the time. Oh, by the way, he invited them to dinner. He invited them to swim in the White House pool. They even played water polo. The president played water polo with them. And when he got out of the pool, you know, his legs were so withered, it was clear that he, he was unable to, would never be able to walk, never wrote about it. Um, so there's something to be said for uh, an attitude we'll never see again, and that's kind of open socializing. I don't think we'll ever be there again, but that was the norm between 33 and 45. Now, uh, you have a chapter on uh, John F. Kennedy's presidency, and <clears throat> of course, the, the most important 13 days of that presidency was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and for uh, a, about half of that or so, uh, the American people had no idea that there even was a Cuban Missile Crisis, that Kennedy uh, and his advisors decided that they would not disclose to the American people uh, the imminent danger uh, that existed. Uh, so you're a former journalist. You're also a, a longtime historian. Do you believe that keeping that secret was the right thing for Kennedy to do in not telling the country about this uh, incredible looming danger? I mean, he did at one point very dramatically. He did at one point very dramatically disclose, you know, carefully staged. But no, I think it was wrong, and I think uh, the press resented it. Bitterly, and don't forget, the press corps had given uh, John Kennedy the same kind of break that it had given Franklin Roosevelt, and for much the same reason. Kennedy was a, uh, a former journalist himself. He had uh, been in Europe after World War II, covering some of the trials of Nazis, and uh, uh, the, he had lifelong pals in journalism, um, as as uh, your guest Bob Woodward would attest. Brent Bradley was one of the best, so they. They failed to disclose ever his health problems, which were considerably, for you know, in a young man, much more severe than we were ever led to believe. It was not just that he had an aching back and sat on a rocking chair, um, but it was also, um, you know, turned a blind eye to his uh, sexual escapades as well uh, and his infidelity and kind of blatant infidelity in the White House. Um, and it was, a, you know, the boys club palling around. So they were ticked off when they did not get the inside scoop. And it dates back a little bit uh, to an earlier crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the uh, Bay of Pigs. Um, the, the CIA plan for the Bay of Pigs invasion was discovered by a journalist who was going to run it. Um, and Kennedy and his family 
begged the editor and the publisher not to publish it because it would be a national security threat. So they didn't. And then when the invasion blew up, Kennedy was furious that the press did not print stories saying how bad the plan was. And he blamed the CIA and the press, which was crazy. And then he gave a speech at the National Publishers Association in New York at the Waldorf Astoria um, and said, I was going to call my speech the president's versus the press, because you have to know that there is the national security trumps uh, freedom of the press every time. And you have to be responsible. By the way, that's when I decided to change the title of my book from the president's and the press to the president's versus the press because of JFK. So I don't think the press ever quite forgave him for keeping, uh, and not only did he keep the crisis a secret for a long time, that is the shipment of the missiles toward, toward Cuba, but he, put a, he clamped down on information thereafter. And the press would rush to Pierre Salinger's office, the press secretary, and demand information, and it was not forthcoming in the name of national security. And look, we have not solved that dilemma yet. Um, Barack Obama uh, imposed the Espionage Act of 1918 during his presidency to clamp down on two reporters who were publishing leaks out of the White House. So um, I, I'm fascinated by the, the fact that um, if you ask all working journalists now, who was the most secretive and uh, president of recent times and the most hostile to the press, you know what they would answer? They probably would not answer Donald Trump. They would probably answer Barack Obama. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago LBJ, and uh, during his presidency, as each month went by, uh, the Vietnam War became the first living room war, and it made LBJ increasingly unpopular. And as you say, for someone to defend Johnson's handling of the Vietnam was, quote, a fool's errand. So uh, if there had not been uh, the TV coverage, of the, the battlefields in Vietnam. Speculate a minute, how do you think the Vietnam War would have been perceived by the American people? Since obviously there was no battlefield footage of World War II or World War I, now all of a sudden it's right here in our living room. So, so how did t the television impact the public perception of the Vietnam War? That's a great question. And um, I'm going to tread very carefully here because I do write about two Texas presidents in my book, um, of two and a half, because I do half a chapter to George H.W. Um, uh, Bush and a full chapter to George W. Bush, both of whom I got to meet a few times, by the way. Um, and I saw Lyndon Johnson in person when I was 15 years old. He spoke at the old Madison Square Garden in New York City, and I was there. I just remember that he was big and, and really much bigger than I expected. So you make a great point, and I do make the point in the book that um, whatever you think of the decision to escalate in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson believed in an open press, and he has to get credit for allowing coverage of the war, for allowing um, journalists to be uh, to 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 cover the war openly. Um, and remember, it was it was the Johnson administration that allowed Walter Cronkite to do that. 
um, legendary documentary about the war in which Cronkite turned to the camera. And for the first time in his career, uh, offered his opinion, saying the time may have come for the United States to seek an honorable way to leave this war. And Cronkite, who's sitting and watching it in the White House, turned to one of you his aides Johnson. and said, You mean yes. Johnson? Jo I'm sorry. Who, who did I say? I'm, you, I'm you said Cronkite turns to one of his aides. Oh. Well, he might have two. How about that? But LBJ turns to one of his aides and says uh, that I've lost Cronkite. That means I've lost middle America. Um, and then Life magazine followed with its own devastating report. Remember the days when Life magazine was so influential and important. Um, so you're right. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe the casualty numbers would have been enough um, <clears throat> to turn people against the war. But the confluence of the of the ubiquity of television, the availability of the images, and the relentlessness of the of the images, and the you know the photograph of the shooting of uh, of that prisoner and Milai and all the things that were covered were devastating to to two successive presidents. And let's remember that there was not that kind of open coverage of of uh, some of the wars in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, after LBJ came Nixon, and you say that after Nixon was taken down uh, by Watergate and had to resign, from that point forward, journalists made gotcha their credo. So ever since Nixon's resignation in 74, if a rising journalist does not have that gotcha mentality, does he have a chance of rising at the national level? Um, that's a that's a, a, a good question. Probably not. Um, they can do it delicately the way uh, um, some do. They can do it aggressively the way Jim Acosta does or Sean Hannity does. Although I don't know if Sean Hannity is a is a journalist as opposed to a TV host. But uh, Acosta, uh, I just read a book by Jonathan Carl. The White House uh, correspondent for ABC TV, um, with whom I just did a program uh, for the 92nd Street Y here in New York, and he takes down <clears throat> Trump in the book uh, for for telling lies too often. But he also um, is pretty rough on Jim Acosta and saying he's an agenda journalist, and uh, no one in the he's the head of the White House Correspondents Association. Carl is. And he says that no one should be uh, an agenda journalist covering a president of the United States. Look, anybody who covers the president and the presidency is going to be something of a celebrity, um, maybe not on the rope line as President Trump is now conducting all, he's not doing interviews, any uh, press conferences. But in the press conference format, every time a president stands up, I'm sorry, every time a journalist stands up, uh, 50 or 60 million people are watching, either then or in the reruns. And going back to Kennedy, the, the journalist, uh, the White House press corps was very opposed to doing live televised press conferences. Eisenhower had done a few, but nobody watched and nobody cared. But when Kennedy did it, um, in a beautiful background at the State Department, staged at a presidential podium with the seal of the president. You know, that had never been done until those press conferences. Now it's routine. One journalist said, this is, we're being forced uh, to watch. It's like watching Kennedy make love at Carnegie Hall. Um, 
Alistair Cook, remember Alistair Cook from Masterpiece Theater? He wrote a, a scathing indictment of the televised news conference. This is a man who would make his bones as a television person. Um, but then journalists began to be recognized by taxi drivers and uh, uh, pedestrians on the street. Suddenly their lecture fees were, were going up. So suddenly they liked being on TV and the televised press conference was there. So I do think there is a way for people to become known. Um, and I don't think, I don't think, um, I don't think journalists love being uh, figures of controversy. Maybe Hannity does. Maybe um, some of the folks on MSNBC do. Rachel does. But it's also scary and dangerous. I mean, there are lots of threats involved. I tell a story about Helen Thomas, who gets into a taxi in Washington late, late in her career. And the taxi driver says, I know who you are. Aren't you the, the president that, aren't you the journalist who every president hates? So she was a little bit put off by that. All right, for my final question before we open it up to the other turtles, you've talked uh, about both uh, Obama and Trump, uh, but I, I want you to talk about Bill Clinton, who certainly gave the media plenty of news to write about and comment on during his yes, eight-year high-speed roller coaster ride in the 24-7 news cycle as he went from, quote, one scrape to another. You say Clinton was the man the media most loved to hate or hated to love. So explain that love-hate relationship between Clinton and, and the media during his presidency. Clinton is um, a winning, winning personality. I mean, he has the golden touch. Anybody who's met him knows that um, all the stories you hear about his effect on women and men, um, the laser look, the charm, the, the curled lip, all of the above, it's pretty irresistible. Um, but journalists don't like to be deceived, and the public doesn't like to be deceived. I think there was actually an astounding amount of forgiveness. Um, Jim Lehrer, um, whom I interviewed, um, I think it was the last interview he ever gave. Um, I had known him from my days in public television, and Jim spoke to me about about Bill Clinton. I wanted to know how resentful he was because Lehrer was interviewing him for the PBS NewsHour, then called the McNeil Lehrer Report, um, on the day that the Monica Lewinsky story broke. And Jim Lehrer asked him directly if there had been any improprieties uh, between the president and Monica Lewinsky. And Clinton looked straight into the camera and said, absolutely not. I do a Clinton, but I won't do my Clinton. And oddly, uh, or remarkably, Lehrer told me in the interview that he was, he believed he was the best communicator he had ever met. Uh, he doesn't resent it. He, he, he thinks there was enormous um, unheard of pressure on him at that moment. Um, and for all of his foibles, I think the press wanted to like him, but he just made it hard. And Clinton himself, who, who I also interviewed for the book, He's the only president who would talk to me. I tried President Bush, but he didn't want to talk. He doesn't like, as we know, he's been very quiet um, and he doesn't like to talk about politics or his own um, presidency. Um, and he certainly had his own fraught relationship with the press. But, but like uh, President Bush, who in his last press conference told the press that he thought that generally they did a good job, even though 
you know, during his one of his campaigns, he said, look, there's Adam Clymer from the New York Times. He's a major league asshole. And Dick Cheney said, for sure, you know, that was caught on tape. Um, um, Clinton, Clinton had a, a, I mean, where Clinton might have gone had he not been as indiscreet and reckless as he was is almost hard to imagine um, because he had a winning hand in Congress. Um, he was a triangulator, as we know, who was not too liberal, not too conservative. And um, that's a legacy, a self-destructive legacy. Uh, but the press, again, was was really into the gotcha culture. Um, and I, you can, I, I say this about Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. I never met uh, Woodward, but I did meet uh, Bernstein a few times. What reporter would not want to write 50 number one bestsellers, um, be portrayed as, get, make a movie deal, be portrayed in the movies by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, and wind up, as Woodward did, doing the same kind of job on Donald Trump as he did on Richard Nixon 50 years later, he's still at it, and people are still opening their doors. Anyway, that's a long way around. The enigma of Bill Clinton is um, is remarkable. And I would say that he doesn't bear malice either, except where uh, I would say Travelgate, which he thought was BS, and Vincent Foster, which just infuriates him um, that anything was made of that beyond a very depressed uh, person. Uh, the stories that he was murdered or that his death scene was staged still upset him, still rankle him. And um, I think that he was a friend of the family and um, he'll never get over that. All right, well, uh, fellow turtles, uh, does anyone have a question for uh, Harold? If so, please unmute yourself. Well, a hundred years, Harold, thank you very much. And, and uh, Talmadge, awesome presentation today. hundred years ago, we had a worldwide pandemic uh, 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 during Woodrow Wilson's administration. We also had military censorship at the time. I'd be interested in your comments uh, about that, but particularly uh, in comparison to what's going on today and uh, the general public's and the press's savaging of Donald Trump over his handling of the uh, pandemic. Um, so yeah, this is my, um, my, my admission that I usually make when I give my talk. So I, I write about the 1918 Paris Peace Conference. Woodrow Wilson took a huge contingent of press uh, with him on the boat to, to France. And, um, the other world leaders thought it was not a good idea, even Clemenceau of France, who had been a journalist. Now, when they got there, Wilson wasn't very open to them and didn't include them. And it turned out that foreign journalists had more access to the meetings. But during the, uh, the peace talks, Wilson got really sick. Some said that he was um, raving. He had a really high fever. And he was actually could have gone either way in um, in terms of recovery. And I think, and most people think, that he caught the influenza. So when I was putting my book together, and you know, it got to be a pretty long book, I said, you know, I got to cut some things. And who cares about a pandemic? It's never going to happen again. So I'm just going to cut that piece 
out of my book. Um, and I did. Um, so uh, that story does not appear much to my embarrassment, although I keep telling it, so now people know. But I, I did look at the press since, and I went back. There was not that much criticism of Wilson's, quote, handling of the pandemic. The notion of masks was introduced, not the, from the White House, as far as I can see, but from the Red Cross and, you know, universally respected health organizations. But there was not, there was very limited expectation that there would be a governmental response. There was no talk of bailouts. Um, there, there was not, you know, no talk about, you know, manufacturing masks or, and I think, you know, there were no vaccines. So people were just treating it like a modern day version of the plague. And there were no real expectations on Wilson, who then later kept the rest of his health crisis a big secret when he had a stroke, uh, when he was trying to promote the League of Nations. So I'm astonished that I can't find much criticism of the administration's, quote, handling, because I don't think there was an expectation that it was going to be handled at that level. And uh, I'll add that Harold's book was supposed to come out this spring. Yeah. Uh, and it was delayed to the fall, as many books uh, was the case. So it went to press actually before the pandemic hit, which is, you know, if, if, if your book had come out this fall, you might have been able to update it with uh, with this, what you just said. But uh, well, I hope they'll let me I hope they let me write a new chapter um, and a new introduction for the paperback, because I'll talk about the pandemic in the in the intro and I will either, you know. I, I left the Trump chapter sort of with a dot, 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 because it's not ended. And um, we'll know the ending, I assume, um, in November. All right. Does another turtle have a question? Well, I'll, I'll let go ahead. Who has one? I was going to say, you're, it's, a quiet, it's a quiet bunch this morning. Well, uh, I, I've got one, Harold. Uh, you know, you've talked a great deal about Trump. And, and as you said, and as I said in my review, uh, you're actually uh, uh, surprisingly uh, positive about Trump's capacity to go around the media uh, with Twitter and his uh, making a persuasive case uh, to the American public about fake news and people's distrust of the of the press. And so I know you have lots and lots of friends who are in the media. Uh, what feedback have you gotten from them for your having uh, kind of presented Trump's uh, media strategy uh, so positively? Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit, Talmadge, about uh, positive implies approved, approval. So I would say I acknowledge his genius as a communicator. Um, I don't think, I mean, um, I don't think it's my job as a historian to bring my political views into the story. So I try to be very careful about that. And anyone who thinks Donald Trump is a bad communicator is, is blind and deaf as far as I'm concerned, or not online. Um, he is a genius at it. Now, one of the complaints I issue, um, and th this has been a big change, is that not only did he reach a huge uh, Twitter audience, every morning, um, but that for years, the cable news coverage in the morning up through, you know, midday or later 
was responses to his tweets. So in other words, they would he would issue an outlandish tweet, and then they would have three experts on Fox and three experts on MSNBC and five experts on CNN, and they would all talk about, you know, is he right? Is he wrong? Is he outrageous? How terrible? How wonderful? And it would go on. So what Trump was doing that was particularly brilliant, whether he knew it or not, is he was defining the news cycle for the other media. And that has interestingly in the last five months stopped that that now MSNBC and CNN just don't publicize the tweets. And I think that has constrained his audience by keeping his communication within the platform that he's using. So I'm not positive. I mean, I, I, I hate most of the messages. Uh, personally and politically, but I think he's he's he has to be acknowledged in history as one of the the most ingenious communicators. I mean, he found a new medium. Uh, his I I found the moment, the historic moment when the world changed. A guy goes to Donald Trump in his office in Manhattan and says, "We found this new thing called Twitter," and Trump didn't even do his own emails at that point. He didn't know what it you know. People printed out emails for him. He said, what's Twitter? Oh, you have to do 30 characters, 40 characters, whatever it is, and you can send a message. And he's, Trump said, oh, who's looking at it? And he said, well, it's growing every day. So they put out their first tweet. Watch me tonight on David Letterman as I do my top 10 list. Do you all remember the top 10 list on Letterman? So from that innocuous beginning came the, the tweet storm of all mm-hmm. time. Harold Holzer is recognized as America's leading authority on the life of Abraham Lincoln. His new book shows he's got a great handle on all our presidents. You can find Harold's new book wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And you can also find them on my website, TalmadgeBoston.com. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, You can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.